Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. I have a smile on my face because uh, I think we should be in a a celebratory mode at the moment. It's August 29th, 2021. It's sunny in California. It's always sunny in California, of course. Uh, but it's sunny on lots of levels. Uh, what a difference a year makes. It's really quite astonishing. If you go back to April 29th, uh, 2020, that was only a year ago, but it's Someone once wrote that uh, the past is a foreign country, and the past, when it comes to America, at least a year ago, really is a foreign country. Uh, on April 29th, 2020, Donald Trump, who was president then, um, said uh, about the coronavirus, this is going away. He rejected uh, the new normal. This is going away, he said rejecting the idea of a new normal in America. I want to go back to where it was. Uh, that, of course, was what MAGA was, uh, Make America Great. I want to go back to where it was. And, of course, he didn't go back to where it was. We are where we are now, and Trump is somewhere else. Uh, back then, uh, Trump and the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, uh, had talks of reopening plans and shared mutual congratulations. DeSantis is still around and he might be a front runner for 2024, but Donald Trump certainly isn't. Fast forward a year, we have a new president making a national speech um, uh, yesterday that's been very well received all over the world. Um, after 100 days, the New York Times reports Joe Biden is transforming what it means to be a Democrat. He's reinventing uh, the, the party on the left of American politics, something nobody, perhaps not even Joe Biden, imagined he could do uh, this time last year. Um, he's also reversing, according to the Washington Post, he's reversing the Reagan era, not the Trump era, the Reagan era, because I'm not sure exactly if there are any institutional legacies from uh, the Trump era. And of course, uh, yesterday, the, 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 the Trump regime is being cleaned up. The FBI um, searched uh, Giuliani's home, Rudy Giuliani, one of Trump's legal henchmen, seizing phones and computers, starting a new narrative, a post-Trump narrative, which is going to be fought out in the criminal courts. Um, uh, and, of course, the pandemic is in retreat. So everything seems to be going back to normal, the normal that Trump promised but wasn't able to deliver a year ago. A year ago, also, I had the St. Louis-based writer Sarah Kenzia on the show talking about media in the age of Trump. Her book, Hiding in Plain Sight, The Invention of Donald Trump and the Erosion of America, was a bestseller last year. And it's out in paperback now. And to celebrate that, as well as spring, I have the great Sarah Kenzia uh, on camera from St. Louis, Missouri, the author of Hiding in Plain Sight. Sarah, is the nightmare over? Um, parts of the nightmare are over. It's certainly better, obviously, than a year ago, as you uh, laid out. But we still have a ways to go. 
say more, a ways to go. I mean, surely, Sarah, um, that's an understatement. If you if you think yeah. about the situation a year ago where Trump was peddling absurd anti-scientific lies about COVID and trying to reinvent America as, as Putin's Russia, surely the worst is over. Um, I think the worst may be over with the pandemic. And that I think is Biden and his administration's greatest success is this uh, massive vaccine rollout. Uh, you could immediately see the difference uh, between his administration and Trump's um, just in terms of competency and you know lacking, lacking the sadistic impulse to murder uh, millions of Americans, uh, which was you know seemingly a Trump administration goal. The thing is though, um, you know one of the articles you were reading cited the Reagan era. Uh, as what the Biden administration could potentially overturn. And the issue, um, you know, and I, I think that that would be great because the reason I think we're very far from being out of the woods here is that we're going up against policies that have literally been in place my entire life. And we're going up against a mentality, um, a mentality that says that government should not serve the people, that corruption is natural and is endemic in our institutions. And we're going up against a lot of malicious, malevolent actors who have inserted themselves into mainstream institutions like the GOP for decades on end. Uh, you know, people like Roger Stone, Paul Manafort, um, and other, uh, you know, indicted but, uh, individuals uh, uh, who were pardoned by Trump. Jumping in here, Sarah, I'm the last person to defend either Stone or Manafort, but they're not typical, are they? I mean, they're both out now. Uh, they're going to spend the rest of their lives in and out of jail and courts. Um, certainly, uh, the Manaforts and the Stones of this world uh, can't be compared to the Reagan era, or can they be? Well, they were part of the Reagan era. I mean, they were working for Reagan, you know, and, the, and they were part of mainstream GOP politics. And then they were part of the GOP's transition into treason of working with uh, adversaries connected to the Kremlin, working with the mafia. You know, as I say in the book, as I outline, we've had this uh, this mix, this nexus of white collar crime, uh, mafia, you know, traditional organized crime and state corruption uh, that has just been growing for four. 40 years. And I think Stone and Manafort are particularly good at this. You know, they're very skillful actors. But what they do, particularly Stone, is they reach out to lower level people, the Proud Boys, um, the Oath Keepers, QAnon, other, you know, MAGA acolytes, and they spur them into acts of violence. And that's why we had uh, the siege on the Capitol. You know, as, as Biden said last night, uh, the greatest, uh, you know, domestic attack on our country since the Civil War. That was a really big deal. And we have not even begun uh, to remedy the damage that that did. There's no commission. Uh, there's a pretty lackluster investigation considering so much evidence is online. And so I am I am worried about that. I think we're moving in the right direction for sure. Uh, but we're at a tenuous point. Tenuous point, perhaps. But also another piece of news from uh, yesterday is that uh, one Trump supporter was found guilty of threatening to kill members of Congress after the January 6th insurrection. People accept it now, it seems, Sarah, as an insurrection. The Proud Boys are in retreat. Um, uh, even Trump, um, and, and of course, we're going to talk uh, more about uh, Trump uh, uh, in the show. Um, uh, he came out with a typical Trump response, uh, quoting him, it's like so unfair, he said about 
the FBI raid on, on Giuliani, things have changed. The, the country has profoundly shifted, hasn't it, uh, since the beginning of 2021? Well, I think that having a change in leadership matters enormously. Uh, you know, we did a very rare and unusual thing in the United States when we voted out an aspiring autocrat who is attempting to sabotage uh, the election process, who is outwardly, openly trying to sabotage election integrity through the courts, uh, through attacks on the Postal Service, uh, through traditional voter uh, disenfranchisement, um, you know, ex exploitation of new voter laws, and then eventually, uh, you know, through the this attempted attack, the January 6th attack. It is amazing that we got through that and got a new administration in. Um, that said, you know, one of the things I'm worried about is while the change has been enormous to have Trump out, the GOP hasn't changed at all in their objectives. And one of the things they're trying to do is make sure that Biden and the Democrats' time in office is as small and as meaningless as it can be. And the way they're doing that is through new uh, voter laws, new voter suppression laws in places like Georgia and Michigan, uh, through laws that are um, criminalizing protest, making it legal for people to run down protesters like in Oklahoma uh, through the rhetoric of people like Tucker Carlson that are calling for violence. They are still on the move. Instead of one big state apparatus from above, we have a lot of uh, state GOP legislatures and you know autocratic elements from below, and they're not they're not giving up. Um, they're well organized, and I hope that the administration, the Biden administration, is prepared uh, to fight this because it's our democracy at stake. Isn't there a tremendous bloodletting now within the Republican Party, Sarah? There's clearly a civil war between uh, moderates, quote unquote, like Liz Cheney and uh, the, the inheritors of, of, of Trump's mantle. Um, this idea of, a, of the Republican Party as a monolith is as inaccurate as, as the Republicans, as, uh, uh, sorry, as, as inaccurate as the Democrats as a, a left wing uh, monolith. I think the Republican Party stays in lockstep most of the time, and Liz Cheney is a real outlier. Um, and you know, and this is especially true on the state level. I think where people don't see it as much. You know, I live in Missouri, uh, in a state that is almost entirely Republican in legislature, even though citizens continually vote for progressive ballot initiatives that then that state legislature overrules. So I have this kind of microcosm experience of what it would be like if the Trump administration had continued and we'd gone, um, you know, fully autocratic with no attention paid uh, to the people's will, the people's votes, and so on. Um, I'm glad that there are people who've left the Republican Party. You know, there are certainly conservatives who've left and they oppose Trump, and they're trying to maybe rebuild something new. But the party itself is behaving um, as a aspiring authoritarian cult. You know, they're anti-democracy, they're neo-Confederates. I wish more of them uh, would step out and speak out and condemn the uh, extremists in their midst, people like my Senator Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz or Lindsey Graham and, and so forth. How does it feel to call Josh Hawley your senator, Sarah? He he certainly doesn't seem to have distinguished himself over the last year. Oh, he's a disaster. But, you know, I, I got to say, like, to stand up for Missouri, I'm simultaneously represented by Cori Bush and Josh Hawley. And that's our political spectrum here. That's the reality of the quote unquote red state. It's never actually red. It's always purple. It's heavily gerrymandered. There's always voter suppression. But yeah, I mean, he's embarrassing. And then, you know, the person who's running uh, to take the place of Roy Blunt, the other senator who's retiring, is Eric Greitens, uh, who was my governor before he was indicted. Um, 
on multiple inf- offenses, including tying up a half-naked woman to a piece of exercise equipment in his basement and taking photos of her and blackmailing her. He's now running for Senate, too, so I might have them both. If that happens, uh, I may be heading over the oh, river. Sarah, now, yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you're more than welcome to come out to California, although I don't think you're as much value to progressives <laughs> out here as, as you are in Missouri. You wrote a you're talking about purple. You wrote uh, your previous book, The View from Flyover Country, Dispatches from the Forgotten America, was also a big hit. I think it's your first big, uh, big best-selling book. It was a book about the view quite literally from Missouri. You mentioned uh, Hawley as a, as a, as a purple senator. Well, is he's just a, a super red senator in a purple right. state, but yeah. <laughs> is, is it just a scammer? I mean, there's been a lot of talk of Hawley went to Yale Law School. I know some people actually who were with him there. Does he know what he's doing? Is he, is he, he, is he just a sophisticated version of Trump? Uh, yeah, I mean, he lacks the charisma of Trump. He lacks the, you know, broad appeal of Trump. And I don't think he'll ever, you know, get that no matter how much he wants it. He's a big phony. I mean, his Yale colleagues, his former classmates condemned him in an open letter when he was running in 2018. And, you know, he he rails on about the elites this and the elites that. He's the ultimate elite. He doesn't care about Missouri. He doesn't even live here. He lives in Virginia in a big fancy house. So, you know, he's a fake populist, just like, you know, Ted Cruz, just like all these other, uh, you know, Republican millionaires and, and billionaires. And it's sad. It's sad for my state because people are genuinely suffering here. And that suffering goes across the aisle. It is, you know, across the political spectrum. And we really deserve better government. And also he, you know, incited an insurrection against my country, you know, against mm. his country, his own country. Like what kind of person does that? No money in the world is worth that. You know, you lose your, your integrity. You can't get it back. And um, it's shameful he's still there. I agree. It is shameful. Uh, Sarah, when we talked last year, um, you have this wonderful phrase in in Hiding in Plain Sight, this idea that we were all trapped in a reality TV autocratic funhouse mirror. Uh, And we talked a little bit about that in, in, in our conversation last year. How did we get out of that mirror? Or are we still in it, in a sense? I mean, we're all still on Facebook and Twitter. We're all still watching reality television. Is that mindset, that ontology, does it still exist in most of our minds? I think that it does. I mean, I think, you know, especially for people who grow up with social media, with digital media, it's become this, you know, intrinsic part of life. There's no differentiation. And of course, we've been in a pandemic for a year with most people working from home, doing Zoom meetings, communicating in that way. We've been taken out of Trump's ongoing reality TV series, which revolves around himself. And that was one of the more remarkable things I think that happened in January was when Twitter finally banned him, how much he disappeared. Um, from public life. One thing I, I basically... Which is I astonishing. Wish- I mean, let's, um, l- let's applaud Twitter, can we, um, can we, Sarah? I mean, the, the tech companies out here get a lot of stick, and I've been one of their biggest critics, but I think we should applaud uh, what Twitter did with Trump because it certainly changed the nature of things, didn't it? I wish that they had banned him sooner because he was inciting violence. And that was my main concern with him being on Twitter. One thing, though, I I wish that they had prevented him from tweeting 
uh, and removed tweets that were, you know, for example, uh, recommending things that were bad for public health, you know, things that were just outright lies. I think the historical record of what he did and how he used social media is very important. And so I wish in some respects that that was still there because I worry that people are forgetting, you know, it's natural to want to forget this. This was traumatic, not just Trump's presidency, but the whole year, the pandemic, all these awful things that happened all at once. But I think that people are almost understating the danger and not understanding how much this was all right in front of us and how few people rose up as institutional actors to prohibit him from causing greater harm. He would announce his crimes. He would announce his intentions right there on Twitter. And people would just, you know, churn out articles or they, you know, shriek in reaction. And there was no real accountability. And I want folks to remember that, or we may make the mistake, the same mistake again. Um, you know, now that it's three months on, I'm a little worried about that, that we're kind of memory holding a lot of the more traumatic aspects of the last few years. Sarah, uh, last night, Biden's speech, he, he called, you know, this is again a headline from the New York Times, uh, Biden calls for the United States to enter a new superpower struggle, both with competition with China and containment of Russia. You came in many ways to your critique of um, Trump uh, from uh, your other academic life as an analyst of um, the post-Soviet empire. Putin, of course, remains in the news. The reverse has happened in Russia when it comes to freedom. Uh, Navalny, uh, the, the, the opposition leader in Russia, is essentially having a, a show trial in which uh, he's just a, a horrible skeleton. Um, is America now, has it established distance from Russia? One of the fears I, I think you had in Hiding in Plain Sight is that America and Russia were becoming indistinguishable. Uh, are they distinguishable once again? I mean, they, they've always been distinguishable in terms of everyday life for people in those countries, freedoms we have, like the conversation we're having right now. I mean, this would be a, con a conversation that would be struck down um, in Russia, press freedom, freedom of assembly, and so forth. I think Trump wanted to make the United States very much like Russia. And I was worried we were increasingly heading in that direction. Where we are very similar is in corruption and is in this, you know, like I said, this nexus of white collar crime and organized crime and political crime, um, you know, and it's hard for people to sort of recognize it because it's not like, you know, the Sopranos or something. It's guys wearing suits and ties. It's millionaires. It's billionaires. It's powerful, prestigious individuals uh, causing a lot of these problems. And they work together across, uh, you know, country lines. And this isn't just the U.S. and Russia. This is also the U.K., Saudi Arabia, Israel. I mean, my God, you know, you can find uh, these malevolent actors Everywhere you go, I am glad. But, that but, but, but let me jump in here on on this. You know, I buy your argument about Stone and Manafort, but are you suggesting that the the entire or much of the the, the corporate elite in America is corrupt? Is some sort of criminal mafia? Not not necessarily just people working for a corporation or working in a bank or whatever. Or the wealthy, um, the, the billionaires, the Bill Gateses, the the Jeff Bezoses. Are, are they all corrupt? Are they all I mean, I, 
I think that this, there's a there's a big incentive for them to continue to be corrupt. If they are corrupt, there is almost no accountability. There is elite criminal impunity. I think it really varies, um, uh, you know, as to the actor in question. You know, like I think Mark Zuckerberg is much worse than Warren Buffett, for example. It's not purely a matter of how much money somebody has uh, acquired, but their sense of living above the law. And hey, whether they really are able hey, to do uh, that. Do you see Zuckerberg in the in the stone? Manafort class of, of, of corrupt uh, individual, of, of criminal? I don't think he has the same agenda. I mean, Stone and Manafort worked together closely and worked with Trump and worked with Roy Cohen. I mean, they really came from a community. I think Zuckerberg is somebody who thinks of himself as maybe amoral, as not having any kind of moral skin in the game, but because of that is immoral um, and certainly you know, more interested in profitability, has no problem uh, allowing his platform to be used to strengthen dictatorships, to share conspiracy theories, to share hard right-wing uh, propaganda. And, um, you know, it doesn't all come down to Zuckerberg. It comes down to the decisions of a lot of people within these companies. And just with our culture struggling with technology that changed very, very quickly in a way that I think our political systems um, just could not keep up with. I mean, some of this was simply inevitable, but I would I was hoping that by now, you know, now that we've seen the damage done, uh, Facebook would, uh, you know, maybe be more forthright about their practices or change their ways. And they just don't seem interested or receptive uh, in doing that much at all. Whereas I think Twitter actually actually is to some degree. Uh, Sarah, when, when we talked last year, you made something of Missouri as the cave state. And we joked a little bit about the metaphor of the cave. It's, of course, the old platonic metaphor of uh, being able to see out uh, of a darkened space. And I think that's one of your great values and contributions as one of America's leading commentators and critics on right-wing politics and on the Trump era. You also were pretty early as a state to understand racial strife and injustice. Of course, Ferguson happened in Missouri. Um, how important do you think Ferguson was and is to the the, the, the George Floyd narrative uh, and the indictment last uh, week of Derek Chauvin as uh, Floyd's murderer? I mean, I think the on the ground activism that was based in St. Louis, um, you know, that came from the St. Louis metro area, including obviously Ferguson, was extremely important. Um, it, ha it helped kick off, you know, the national Black Lives Matter movement. I have to point out, though, that St. Louis doesn't have a Black Lives Matter chapter because they see a lot of these out-of-town activists who were bolstered by the media as exploitative, as people who, you know, kind of exploited St. Louis's pain and then moved on to the next place. So, um, you know, that's something that's increasingly kind of coming to the mainstream in terms of coverage. And I, I think folks should look at that more. Um, State Ferguson is a heartbreaking story because there really hasn't been that much reform and the reform we've had has been slow. But one thing that's interesting is that we've had a number of elected officials who either participated in the Ferguson protests or supported them, including Cori Bush, uh, my representative, Wesley Bell, who replaced the very corrupt prosecutor that did not charge the officer in the Ferguson case, and our new mayor of St. Louis, uh, Tashara Jones. And so those sorts of changes are good. I hope they lead to more uh, change on the ground. But 
Um, you know, it, it's it's been a very hard seven years. People who participated in those protests are often they're, they're traumatized from the experience and from the lack of reform and accountability. Obviously, the verdict, uh, the Derek Chauvin guilty verdict is a very positive thing, but I hope it's replicated in, in future cases and not an anomaly. Uh, I think we all do, Sarah. Um, as I said, this this idea of the cave state we talked about in our last interview uh, you describe Missouri as the bellwether state, the place that, I guess, sees trends and developments first. And that was uh, brought out in, you, in your book, The View from the Flyover Country, as well. What, what are you seeing, Sarah, that we elites on the coast in California and New York that we're not seeing yet? Well, you're the canary in the coal mine. Tell us what's on the horizon. Well, first, I want to say I don't think coastal states are elite by any means. If I say elite, I really mean somebody who's got like millions of dollars in his. No, no, I, I, was, I, I, I wasn't like, accusing. I, I, I was uh, making fun of my. I just want to make sure you, that, that you're yeah, audience. Yeah, no, I'm not knows. accusing you of that. <laughs> um, you know what? I, what I'm worried about right now. You know, we're coming out of this pandemic. I think everyone is very, very afraid. Uh, and again, it doesn't matter what your political proclivities are. Um, and I think a lot of the messaging obviously from the Trump era, uh, about public health and how to keep safe and how to respect others during this horrible time uh, was very bad. It was often full of lies. They were telling people to drink bleach. Uh, they were opening things before they shouldn't have. Fauci went back and forth on masks. You know, Cuomo was a disaster. Like, this is across, across the board. Um, I'm seeing so much nervousness now. And I'm also really noting the geographical discrepancies. Like, when I found out the CDC lifted the outdoor mask mandate, my reaction was like, there's an outdoor mask mandate. Like I, I literally had no idea. I had no idea that people had to wear masks outside because we never, even though St. Louis County is under an indoor mask mandate and has been the whole time, uh, the state itself was un, under any kind of mandate and we never did it outside because we don't need to. We're, we're, you know, you can walk around and be more than six feet apart from somebody. So there wasn't, it's not like being in New York City or something where you're densely packed on public transportation. I think that a lot of the messaging about this, because our states are so different, um, um, you know, if you live in a place of suburban sprawl like St. Louis versus a dense city, you know, you you should be following different rules. Um, and they're kind of bringing out the same rules. And it's it's caused people to get paranoid. It's caused people to get conspiratorial. It's exacerbated a lot of anxieties. I don't think there's really a, a smooth road out of a pandemic. I think a lot of this is just natural human emotion after a year of trauma and confusion. But I am worried. Um, I'm worried, honestly, and I talk about this in my podcast, Gaslit Nation, that we may be re-entering something akin to the end of the Spanish flu in 1919, when there was the red summer, where people were finally able to congregate in public. Uh, and, you know, and everyone remembers this era for for jazz and parties and flappers and whatever. But there was also massive violence, massive anti-black violence, anti-immigrant violence, white mob violence. I think the country is kind of headed that way in part because of all of this, uh, you know, this emotion and this fear and this pain and also the gun sales, which are going through the roof. And we've already seen a number of mass shootings in recent weeks. So that's something I'm wary of. And I certainly think Missouri may be, uh, you know, ground zero for that because we're, we're a very violent place. Well, even um, you're talking about not an easy transition. Donald Trump talked about his, um, first months out of office is not an easy transition either. Sure. Um, his, um, his son now sounds as if he's going to end up in court too. Um, I've always thought of the, the Trump family as being somewhat like the, 
the Ceausescu's in Romania, peasants who got above their station and got dragged out and executed or humiliated. Does the Trump dynasty, the fan, and I use that word carefully, does it have a future, Sarah? Or do you think these characters, um, the, 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 the two sons, the daughter, I can barely even mention their names, um, are they going to just end up as, 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 as second-class tabloid material in or out of jail? Well, I mean, Trump is a born rich tycoon. Like he liked to present himself as this big outsider, like, oh gosh, my father is only a millionaire from Queens and not a billionaire from Manhattan. Like to any normal person, it's like you are, you know, super privileged and advantaged. And there he is, so by the, the way, with his, with his horrible father, Fred, who of course tra traumatized him and, and created this the psychotic president and his mother, another bizarre character. And Sarah Cooper, who did such a wonderful job uh, impersonating him. Anyway, go on. Sorry. Yeah. And there also, you know, Fred Trump was linked to organized crime. He brought up Donald Trump and Fred Trump Jr., uh, you know, in a world linked to organized crime. And then Donald Trump brought up Ivanka and Don Jr. and Eric uh, to help carry out his, his criminal initiatives through the Trump organization and also brought them up to be in contact with, you know, mafiosos and oligarchs. You know, Ivanka spun around on Putin's chair in the Kremlin in 2006 when she went there with Felix Sater, uh, you know, who, who was working with Trump at the time. Um, you know, this is a, a really, this is a political American family. You know, they, they may be like a kind of black sheep of American political life. I think people don't want to admit how uh, institutionally embedded they are. You know, they'd rather think of this as a fluke, as outsiders. I think they're just a really extreme manifestation they're a of corruption. Yeah, would it be fair to call them a reality television American family? And yes. therefore, there's always going to be a sequel. There's always going to be another show. Yes. And they're going to milk it for as much money as humanly possible. I mean, that's what they care about is immunity from prosecution and money. And the road to that is maintaining power and getting political power is a great way to go about doing that. I mean, that was one of the reasons Trump wanted to be president is you get to rewrite the law. You get to use the attorney general as your personal lawyer. It was like a dream come true. Um, so, I mean, I think there's two ways this could go right now. I think they're, they're lying low, just like Trump did in the early 90s after all his bankruptcies because they don't want the scrutiny. You know, they like attention, but they hate scrutiny. And this is a time where I think people might be, especially with Giuliani um, being raided, they might be more interested in these extremely serious crimes and taking them seriously as criminal actors. They hide behind this reality TV facade. They want people to think that they're buffoonish and competent. They're actually a, a sophisticated criminal operation that's great at propaganda and understands the American infotainment complex, just like with the O.J. Simpson trial or, you know, other things that, that blended the line between news and, and entertainment. They grasp that so intuitively. And um, I'm not sure they'll go away, although I don't think any of the children have the, the charisma and the power of their father, which I think he's very disappointed about. But oh, poor him. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sarah, uh, if, if anyone has scrutinized the Trump regime, the the, 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 the Trump disease, it's you. Your book, Hiding in Plain Sight, is, is a wonderfully, I don't think there's such a word as scrutinous, but if there isn't, there should be. <laughs> um, you have scrutinized the Trumps as well as anyone. Um, and, and I think your book will stand out, and it's now out in paperback, stand out as one of the best books on the Trump era. We also had a Carlos Lozada, the excellent uh, book reviewer of the Washington Post on the show, um, who, who wrote a book called What Were We Thinking? A Brief Intellectual History of the Trump Era, in which I think your book was included. 
in addition to your book, is there a book from the Trump age, something that describes Trump um, that you think captured the insanity, the evil, the darkness of, of the last of the of, 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 of 2016 to 2020? Um, yeah, like specifically about Trump, I think um, Ruth Ben Gahat's book, uh, Strong Men, is a good yeah, one because it's we situates- had Ruth on the show. She's excellent. Yeah, and it situates him, you know, within the context of autocrats and personality cults from around the world. So, especially if you're new to kind of thinking of Trump in this vein, that's a good book to go with. Well, Sarah, real uh, as always, an honor and a privilege, and a lot of fun to talk to you. Your new book—it's not a new book. Uh, your your old book, Hiding in Plain Sight, <laughs> which came out last year, is now out in paperback. If you haven't read it, you need to get it in paperback because it's a wonderful, a wonderfully, as I said, scrutinous overview of the of the Trump age. If you bought it in hardback, buy it in paperback too to make sure that um, Sarah can can can. Can continue to feed her children. Uh, Sarah, any <laughs> other books uh, uh, at the moment that you think people might read? Anything else for the um, Let's audience who are very yeah. keen reading? This is good. I, I blurb this. This is by, um, as you can see, Yad al-Baghdadi and Ahmed Gatnash. This is the Middle East Crisis Factory. Um, it's a history of the Middle East and also the you know Western involvement in the Middle East that I think um, you know situates the region in a different way for a Western audience. Um, it gives a historical perspective, political perspective. Um, I had a Yad on my podcast, Gaslit Nation, recently. So folks, if they want you know preview, they can listen to that interview. Um, it's definitely out in the UK. I think it's out in the us uh pretty soon well sarah we're friends but we're also competitors we both have a podcast i'll have to get uh the authors of that book on my show too as always an honor and a privilege keep well good luck and we'll have you again next year to think about how 2022 is treating both joe biden and donald trump thanks so much oh thank you for having me on again i appreciate it